Hello and welcome to this uh, week's session on community wealth building. This week we're joined by Joshua Gilbert. G'day Josh, how are you? G'day Wally, I'm well, how are you? Yeah, very well. So Josh, I was um, really looking forward to speaking uh, with you today. I think already from the little bit that I know about you, you're a man of contrasts, a kid from the bush that can talk, an Indigenous man who works at PwC, a farmer who cares about climate. Um, but that's just my observations. I'd love to hear you introduce yourself for people who don't know you and for us to, um, yeah, then talk a bit about the future. Does that sound all right? Sounds good, mate. Excellent. So, uh, hi, everyone. I'm Josh Gilbert. I'm a Waramai man from the mid-north coast of New South Wales. Uh, my mob... Uh, I'm Waramai on both my mum and dad's side, a Waramai man, uh, and my family go back to the first recorded birth in the mountains in the caves in Gloucester and um, I guess have a very traditional, um, you know, Indigenous ag history, but also a uh, Western colonial ag history from 1825 with some very early interactions with my dad's ancestors and the Australian Agricultural Company. Um, and yeah, I, I guess for me, the work I do is to bring Indigenous knowledge into the public domain, um, discussing things like climate change and making sure that agriculture is ready to um, move into that space as well. And to, I guess, facilitate a conversation between 60,000 years of plus of Indigenous knowledge and 60,000 years of future planning and optimism in my eyes. Got to unmute myself. That's amazing. Thanks, Josh. I wondered whether you would, um, you know, consider yourself a futurist with the sort of work that you do. I think I'm more of a connector. Um, I have this old cattle brand of my grandparents at um, at home that um, is kind of this, um, yeah, kind of three flowing diagram that shows that um, things are connected to each other. And that everything is pivotal, pivotal on this moment right now. So I, I think I'm more of a connector and standing here to bridge the two uh, while acknowledging that it's just a moment in time and that, that moment keeps changing. So it's very fluid. Awesome. Well, we're going to take a look at the future today if we can. So, I mean, everybody that we have the pleasure of speaking with has a view as to what's going on in the world at the moment. And most are motivated by some concerns that they see on the horizon. I mean, does that ring true for you? Do you have a view of business as usual? Uh, and if it, you know, leads to a bad outcome, can you kind of describe that journey for us? Yeah, it certainly resonates with me. I think um, for me, the, the business kind of environment is, is very fraught and, you know, capitalism and, and what that means and um, just how it was developed um, certainly is concerning. And, and I mean, it's, it's quite reflective when, uh, you know, I study agriculture and, and the terminology there and, and that very early age of enlightenment thinking from, from uh, Britain, um, particularly kind of in the, the 17, 1800s, is still the thought process that seems to be dominating a narrative in Australia. So I certainly see a lot of that, you know, very age of enlightenment thinking has just kind of spurred on this pathway and kept the narrative going that 
I particularly don't resonate with and, and I think is, is very fraught and uh, hasn't been discussed or debated. So we've kind of rehashed the language. We reshare different ideas and methodologies now. But if you start unpacking where we actually are, it's very much rooted in that kind of early um, colonist views and, and language. So I am... Um, I'm hesitant about the future, but certainly optimistic as well in that I think um, there's a great opportunity for us to start bringing Indigenous knowledge and wisdom to the fore and, um, you know, weaving that in through a colonial lens and, and hopefully leading some of the conversation as well into the future. Um, Josh, can you talk to help me understand better the colonial lens and what that has done to Australia or in you know the last 220 years yeah 40 years yeah well it, i mean if we start from the start um i mean i've been looking at the works of people like john Locke at the moment who talks about labor as a um process of property rights so you know you have this common land or co commonwealth maybe in this instance um of where if you it's all jointly owned but as soon as somebody acts in some kind of um, men are and you know commit some kind of labor then that you know defines the ownership of that item then um, and it's funny even in his very early works he talks about native indians kind of doing that act but of course you, you see the process of colonization in australia and that kind of denies uh any of that that kind of premise um you've also got um you know so, some of the early colonial records you you have to kind of unpack and think about things from that time and you obviously see an over-recording of resources that could be sent to the motherland. And um, it's the same story in, in America and Canada, but uh, certainly reigns here true in Australia as well. It's um, what can we rip up, take, sell, flog, um, all the way back over to, to England and uh, supply back there and make sure we get money and financial gain from that. Um, so that kind of narrative and unpacking um, provides me with a bit, you know, a bit more understanding as to why we're colonised. We unpacked the word colonisation even um, and the word agriculture, which was originally termed culture. Um, you actually start understanding kind of this process of, of um, how we settled or, or colonised societies. Um, colonisation actually means to cultivate, um, as does you know, agriculture, obviously. So um, to cultivate land. So you, you go through this natural process of ripping out trees, ploughing up the land, putting fences out on and, and putting cattle on the land. So as this kind of progression that, that's happened um, and certainly I, I think that kind of sets the basis as to why we had such an agricultural dominated industry here, why the Australian Agricultural Company got given, um, you know, a million acres and a, a million pounds to set up. Uh, and I mean, there, there is a, um, a warning I think at the moment given the, the state of the environment, you know, and some of the policies that are happening at the moment, we might be going back through that process again. I mean, we're seeing huge tracts of, uh, of trees and, and native bushland being ripped out at the moment. I mean, it's all for an agricultural purpose. And if you look at that kind of trajectory, you can understand why that's happening and, and what the future of that might be. Well, it scares me, but tell me... <laughs> Tell me why I should be more scared. Like, what what's the worst case scenario if we continue this way? For me, I mean, worst worst case is, I mean, obviously we have climate change uh, already impacting our, our country and, and lands here. That threatens you know a whole range of things, but certainly um, you know economic uh, economic and ecological collapse. 
I think we need to acknowledge that they both kind of happen together, um, even though in the strict uh, environment, uh, economical sense, we, we might not think about the environmental sense, um, but certainly intertwined as well. And we need to think about the way in which they will play off with each other and, um, and work together as well. Um, and climate change is obviously going to have a huge impact on that. For me, I think about cultural loss. Um, we've already had a history of colonization in Australia, which means that, you know, certainly um, some of our mobs from across the country um, have had to either redevelop or recreate or, re or relearn um, culture from records that have been kept, uh, you know, from white people. So you're kind of relying on an interpretation of what somebody else saw of your culture to try and restore that, um, which is very difficult, uh, I think, and, and for me personally, at least. Um, so I think we're tracking in that kind of method again. I, I hope our culture, Indigenous culture and knowledge res remains strong. And I mean, it's certainly a bit more respected in recent times, um, dampened by COVID. Obviously, I, I think we had a resurgence of, you know, everything Indigenous um, back in the early part of 2020 um, after the bushfires and drought. And there was certainly a lot more interest, which, um, yeah, certainly got waned by, by COVID. Um, but yeah, that, that's where I, I mean, worst case for me, that's where we're heading. We're heading to complete collapse. Um, I'm, yeah, optimistic that Indigenous knowledge will get us through, but um, yeah, just concerned about the, the rush, I guess, of where we're heading. Well, you know, it uh, paints a very bleak picture, but there are these sort of seeds of hope, like uh, Bruce Pascoe's book, um, Your Own PhD, they're bringing Indigenous wisdom uh, to conventional, and I say conventional, even though it's really only 60, 70 years old, uh, bringing back to conventional agriculture some of the Indigenous wisdom. Can you talk to us about you know, some of those um, seeds of hope that you see that we could actually change the direction through Indigenous uh, knowledge. Yeah. Yeah, certainly. I mean, as, as I said, I think COVID had dampened some of the progress we made after the bushfires. I mean, the, the Fire Sticks Alliance guys that, you know, are doing cultural burning and all the other groups that are doing that as well um, show, you know, huge promise around just kind of, one aspect of indigenous land management that people can learn from uh, you mentioned uncle bruce pascoe i mean certainly his work has has connected and proven the uh long-standing history and cultural understanding of agriculture and, and land ma management as compared to you know this hunter-gatherer myth um that was once dominated in you know the literacy so I think um, certainly for me that that's moving forward. I'm seeing a lot more companies wanting to do projects with Indigenous people, uh, more opportunity for us to speak uh, and engage in truth-telling as well. So we're certainly moving in the right direction. Um, it's just the speed, really. I, I think, as I said, pre-COVID, we're, we're making great tracks. Um, there's a few, I mean, obviously the government commitments and a few other things are, are still kind of being developed at the moment um, post that, which is, which is good. Um, but yeah, I hope that we return back to the narrative. I um, would hate to see, you know, us as a society have to go through another bushfire or another severe weather event to prove that we need to go back to Indigenous knowledge. We kind of had the 2009 bushfires, you know, I attended when I was 17 and, you know, we talked about, you know, let's change everything and this sign of hope now, um, you know, got forgotten about. We've just had the, the massive bushfires now. 
it seems all but forgotten about. You know, I, I just hope that we don't have to keep reliving through these kind of severe things to realise that Indigenous people are sitting over here saying, hey, think about us. <laughs> it shouldn't be as hard as it is to get attention when you've been the only population on Earth to manage for 60,000 years of continuous population, right, of continuous habitation. Um, it's something of a record that Australia, I think a lot of Australians want to be proud of, but for many reasons, you know, it, it's kept as our, our secret instead of our trophy. It's a very strange um, uh, cultural phenomenon we're in at the moment. But there are some great seeds of hope. I mean, if we extend it out to, you know, give you the power of a magic wand, and I said, okay, Josh, we're going to extend out to 2030 knowing all the shitstorm that is still likely to occur with your magic wand, create and help us to understand what, what could that future utopia look like? What does it look like with integrated Indigenous agricultural knowledge and today's modern farming community and, and community generally? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I like to think about it a bit longer term than that. I um. I think there's a, a lot of transition that needs to happen. And, you know, I, I love all the magic powers to be able to do everything overnight. But I um, I think there's this transition period. And, and for me, that that's an important phase as well. We need to acknowledge that we're going to go through that before we get good outcomes. Um, I certainly think, um, for me, if I, I think about war in my country, my, my family's history, um, that... For me, it's rooted obviously in agriculture, just because of, of who I am and my my makeup. But um, the dream for me is in sixty thousand years' time, we'll have strong cultural war on my kids still farming war on my country. Um, that you know the the connection to country is still strong. That you know they can drive and, and go and see the or, or fly potentially um, and still experience the beach and the natural beauty of our area that they're accepted for, for who they are uh, and that they can share that passionately and openly without racism or discrimination. And that, um, that you know, that they're leading the way, that we're a, an integral part of the economy, that we're still um, the biggest landholders in, in our area, uh, which we are today, but, you know, often gets overlooked um, that we have more productive use of that land for, to allow for cultural reconciliation for us, but uh, along with um, non-Indigenous people as well, that, you know, this this real kind of moving towards in, Indigenous leadership, you know, we, we want a Prime Minister and recognition at all different other levels. And, and the other thing that's really important for me is that our mob get the self-determination and freedom to do what they want. Um, one of my biggest fears of where we are at the moment, I think, is that it's very easy to push Indigenous people, particularly young kids, into industries that, you know, look fancy or, or have high-paying jobs to try and break down uh, structural ceilings there. Um, certainly, I, I know, and you know, I had bought into the fact that becoming an Indigenous lawyer was such a great kind of feat. And if we had a whole heap of Indigenous lawyers, then we'd change the world. But we, we also need agriculturalists, we need chemists, we need audiologists, um, nurses, teachers. Uh, you know, we need a, a whole gamut of different careers open to our people rather than just being pushed into certain aspects. So 
for me, I, I hope that kind of long-term vision enables, you know, people to do what they want to be doing freely, openly, without discrimination and, and hopefully enjoying the pristine more of my country uh, land aspect. Well, let's talk to that for a second. What does pristine Waramai country look like? Like paint me the picture. How many like community enterprises or indigenous enterprises or mix of enterprises exist in that utopia? Yeah, it's, I mean, I think it's cognizant and, and mindful of, you know, we've got some of the most beautiful aspects. I mean, we've got the Barrington Coast, you know, Barrington Tops at one, one you know, hour drive off one way you know the beautiful foster beaches an hour drive the other way like it's kind of i think utopia in itself as it is um i'm I'm mindful that the environment has changed quite a lot um we were part of that first initial um million acre land grant from the australian agricultural company and and that's that history for us uh, as well my people but also for AACO that still exists as a company. I don't, I don't think we've ever healed that friction and, and been engaged in truth telling there. Um, but that needs to enable to that to be done. Sorry, to then enable more conversations. I mean, and then obviously we've been impacted by mining um, as well, which kind of creates a, a you know another impact on the landscape. So for me, it's around getting landscape right first and, and connecting with land, being able to have that. Um, you know, the ability to connect with that properly. Revitalizing language is really important and, and the overlay of language on land is, is you know, I, I can't stress the, the importance of that. And once we kind of get there, then it's breaking into, you know, enterprise and economic development. Um, I certainly think we've got some of the most beautiful country in the world. I know everyone will say that, but um, for me, where my country certainly has that. And if we can enable our mob to stay on country, and, and engage in, a, in an economy, not just locally, but right across the world. I think we have a great opportunity to tell our story as the first people from there, um, like all the other mobs across Australia have as well. Can you help me with the truth-telling around the AA company? I mean, not if it's going to get you in legal shit, but I actually don't know the, the, the issue that you're talking about there. So, so I mean, for me, the, the narrative is a personal one more than anything um we the the australian agricultural company was started over in in england um they got given a million acres a million pounds and said go and create an agricultural entity for australia to feed the masses and and clothe the masses i guess as well um and for me that the tension and, and i mean it's just my my personal story i guess um I know there's records from AACO in 1825 that my Indigenous family and non-Indigenous family first met through a raid. Um, our Indigenous family were, um, you know, raiding the white farmers of the time and through that um, came a connection and, and marriage um, and connected them. We know through our, our records that um, my dad's ancestors were taken off to orphanages and um, forced to learn to read and write because that then they would be a useful employee for the company in the future. Um, and while that, you know, <laughs> it didn't happen for my family, uh, that my dad's ancestors revolted and, um, you know, she married a bush ranger and, um, you know, had a, another narrative there. But for me, that, that kind of conversation ha- hasn't been opened. Um, we have land in our country that 
was subdivided and sold off by AA Co, which gave them the initial capital to keep buying up in the northern country. Um, and you know, our people, you know, I, I've had conversations with councillors in, in our local region who said, "Oh, well, you can't apply for native title land access anymore because AA Co uh, held that privately and just you know it, it extinguishes native title." And I, I don't necessarily think that's the case, but. For us, that, you know, that, that was our country. It, it got handed over to a company. We know we had Aboriginal stockmen and, and, and women who worked for the company who, you know, given the, the narrative of agriculture, I, I highly doubt we're ever, um, you know, paid right. We know of uh, the um, prostitution and, um, you know, unpaid wages and, and murders that happened on, you know, a lot of agricultural company across Australia. I know there's stories of that on, on more of my country. Um, that have been recorded so for me it's about unpacking all that and that's the truth that we need to start reconciling and, and you know it's it's not it's not to cause any harm or or for, for any benefit it, it's for for me to feel comfortable on, on my country I, I need to know that history and I know that there's records of of that kept in in universities that you know, I have to go through a, a university process to get permission to even read about my ancestors. Um, so, you know, for me, it's about making people aware of that, giving them access so that we can read about our family um, and that we can start, you know, having that engagement with what our involvement in that agricultural system was like um, and, and just really opening up that conversation and being honest about it. Wow, Josh. And... <clears throat> You know, the, the plot thickens on that because after the dispossession of your mob, they sold the land to dispossessed mobs in the north of Australia in exactly the same way. And I think that goes to that colonial mindset that you were talking about before. Um, it might be a great time to just pause and ask Gareth to emerge and share with us what he's captured to date. But I'm hoping there's enough there that we can um, draw out a picture of what happens with business as usual and what happens in uh, the best of circumstances. So, Gareth. I just want to say I'm out of practice. I'm <laughs> out of practice, but I've done my best. I'm out of practice. So there's going to be, there's going to be a bit more to add than maybe normal. Okay. So let me see how, uh, now, can you see the screen? Yes. Thanks. Great. Okay. So, um, I mean, wow, what a great start. So, I mean, you talked about, 60,000 years in both directions and this being a pivotal time. So that, that was, um, I, don't know, I think I've got, you said Gloucester, I'm not sure that's the right, put a Gloucester there. That's spot on, mate. Spot it on. is. Okay. And I, yeah, I, yeah, got a few, few things from your, your website there. And I, I, you know, I think the, the tagline um, probably underpins a lot of what, what you've just been talking about. So we started off with, um, uh, colonialism and and sort of what happened there so you know the enlightenment thinking labor defining ownership and colonization and i think you were why not we've just in terms of conversation you, you know that seems to it, it's only just happened but really that seems to really connect with that we we're just talking about with aa co you know given the you know sort of given the land in a way um from this colonial power that gets subdivided with a with this, this idea of you know feeding the masses of whatever, but then there's no recognition of the people who actually own the land who are there first and, and how hard it is to get the truth now. Um, 
And then you sort of kind of talked about really the, some of this idea of the, the idea of cultivation and taking these resources um, and ripping things up and out. Originally it was to send to the motherland, now it's to, you know, other agriculture and there's still these land clearing practices. And in the face of this, we're facing not only, you know, we're facing vegetation loss, biodiversity loss, we've also got climate change on top of that and cultural loss. And I think, um, you know, that, that really just come through, um, you know, very strongly that, that there's only in some cases you talked about, there's only records, you know, from colonialists and even the universities who owns, you know, who have some, some of these, you know, that it's not easy to get access to. So there's that, um, the complications of truth telling there and, and that were, were very strong. Um, we spent a little bit of time on the, the um, some of the seeds of hope and truth telling was a core concept of that. And also, and I haven't captured this adequately, so we'll probably have to add a few things here, but this idea of, you know, there is this emergence of, um, some of these stories are really getting prominence and Bruce Pascoe is, is clearly one of, there were agricultural practices, there are land management practices we can learn from and, and integrate and being able to see those as seeds of hope and things that we can, that um, for all Australians as well as um, First Nations peoples that can um, learn from and use, well not use, that's not quite the word, in, integrate maybe it's better. Um, again, I'm hoping I've got some, you have mentioned beaches and tangents, I think, and I'm hoping I've got the right spot, but in terms of the sort of vision, self-determination, um, still the biggest landholders and being able to, to farm the land and not just going into industries that are, are recognised as ones that need to have um, some sort of breakthrough or targets, but also sort of agriculturists, nurses, so, you know, a more rounded um, inclusive set and that connection between land and language and I know you're talking about Newcastle and um, in another aspect of my work I was I know that um, there was that there was you know a, talking to one of the councils there and they were talking about you know doing a lot of um, work on some of the parks to integrate language onto some of those things so it's it's kind of interesting to see to hear some of that and um, very different but in Wales that was how some of that kind of thing sort of started as well where I'm from and then you also talked about the importance of local international connections so this wasn't about just sort of closing off it was really about still being into you know part of the international um, you know uh, part of the, the world at large and, and not sort of isolating which I think is a really important point so that's a quick summary and I know I, I've, I've a bit out of practice, I've probably missed a few things. So what are the key things you'd like me to add in here that I've missed? Our fire sticks as a, uh, and the recent fires being a bit of a catalyst for, um, you know, recognition of Indigenous stuff. But, um, Gareth, uh, sorry, Josh, you're probably best to dictate to Gareth directly the things you think we've missed in capturing what we were just talking about. No, I, I think that's right. Um, yeah, I, I've got some commentary, I, I guess, around the, the middle about the process, but um, uh, we'll keep that for the next, oh, next that's bit. A, that's but, the next um, yeah. yeah. So do, do you want, do you want to, should I give you the bit of around the process? So it's, um, this is a, based on a work of a guy called Andrew Curry and uh, 
It's called the Three Horizons of Change. Basically, what the first horizon is the sort of the current system and sort of some of the history and what what can kind of what we worry will happen if it keeps on going. And I think you you articulated that as you know it's collapse. Then on the this blue line here is um, on the top right is the kind of preferred future. There are a couple of different ways of doing this, but in this case, we're looking at the preferred future. And then what are some of the things that are happening in the present down here um, in the first horizon that are uh, point towards that, that put, making that future possible? In this middle, um, which is the, the next part of the conversation, is really what you, you, you kind of uh, wanted to go to when what he originally asked you about the magic wand and what you want is the transition space. So it's like, okay, we've got these two, these two different worlds. You know, it's the transition space in the middle where all these things collide and how do we navigate that? And uh, I think that's the next part of the conversation. Excellent. Sounds good. Right. Well, I'll stop sharing because I know time's limited and um, we'll let you dive back into that. Thanks. Uh, thanks, Josh. So I'm going to get um, uh, you pinned again for our video, but um, let's talk about transition. I think professionally at PIC, you would have spent a lot of time dealing with transition issues. Do you have a view on how we need to transition from business as usual and what does that look like? You know, what are the short-term steps? Uh, and then what are the medium steps? Yeah, awesome. So I think um, for me, the, the first transition period has got to be around truth-telling and, and, and honesty and, and that kind of conversation really needs to happen. Um, in, in the ag space, particularly, I um, look at the statistics and, and they're pretty pretty obvious to me, to be honest. Um, Indigenous people still own 40% of the landscape still today. Uh, there's research out there that says that um, all of that country or, or the, the majority of that country is considered marginal country at the moment. But with the impacts of climate change, it's going to be relied upon more by you know, farmers in, in a broad sense to try and feed the population here and overseas. So um, for me, it's pretty obvious that we need to make a connection between Indigenous landholders as being the 40% and um, you know <laughs> the agricultural sector, um, we're just really terrible at doing that. So I mean, to give to give a scale size of um, where we need to head, the Australian Agricultural Company, surprise surprise, still own one percent of Australia's uh, landmass, uh, and they're considered one of the biggest players in the agricultural space. So you know we're sitting over here with forty percent saying, well, you know, surely some of this country is going to be important for ag one day in the future, and. and I, by no means, so I mean all country. I think, um, you know, we, we still need to retain country for a whole heap of other reasons. But, um, yeah, that, that for me is a, re a really obvious starting place. And, and to get to that, we need to engage in this truth-telling process. So I, um, I see the next, you know, <laughs> it depends on society, but um, we're certainly willing to have the conversation. We need more research into to the truth of what happened. Um, I'm reading a book at the moment um, from, um, you know, that, that basically shares a, a very similar narrative to what Uncle Bruce said, but was developed in 2008. So, I mean, the way we're going, we're still eight years behind 
when the original conversation, you know, was was shared, and and this is research Uncle Bruce relied upon. He's actively stated this, you know, still 2015, 16 before Dark Emu came out, and people were happy to have a conversation around it. So, um, you know, we're talking seven or eight years before that kind of acknowledgement of truth, uh, let alone <laughs> actually researching all of it to be able to share it. So. Um, for me, that has to be done. That then facilitates the opportunity to open, you know, the use of Indigenous knowledge and, and the respectful use of that. And by respect, I mean it, it has to be, for, in, in my eyes, led by Indigenous people. And I think that's one of the shortcomings of where agriculture's relationship with Indigenous people has been to date. Um, it's been very much on a white person's interpretation of what Indigenous knowledge is, and that's what an Indigenous methodology is. Um, I look at that and say, well, unless we're leading it, um, you know, it, it's not an Indigenous methodology. You certainly haven't included us and we should be at the table as well. Um, so that that has to be done. I, I think that's kind of the second kind of time period for me. Um, and, and really, I, I think for me, none of this will be led by, by government. Um, and even the business, we, we know businesses are reflective of society. So businesses are going to be, you know, the second group that we need to convince and, and then government, but it really starts with the people. So we need to, to be opening and having conversations like this. We need to be opening this up to make it more accessible to people generally before we then start infiltrating businesses and then having the conversations with government. That's kind of the, the process I think we need to go on. What have you seen or what would you like to see that enables communities to start having these uh, truth-telling uh, conversations and then being constructive with the, uh, you know, with the result of those conversations? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think about, think about war in my country a lot. Um, I mean, obviously being from there, I, I you know, spend all my time, or a fair majority of my time there. Um, and, and I think about what triggers me being at home. I, I know our people have got this long-standing history there. I know my auntie holds on to this bit of paper somewhere that says that our family have the first recorded birth in the cave in the mountains there, and she will carry that bit of paper to her grave. And, and you know, she I, I, I don't even know if she'll ever pass it on, but I know that that, that truth is there. Um, but I, I think about the way in which we have been engaged locally and just how it hasn't worked. So if I drive, drive into Gloucester, home for me, um, that there's an acknowledgement of AA Co being the, the first founders of, of our town, um, which instantly denies our story. Um, we have the, I mean, you drive into town and the sale yards are on the right-hand side. Uh, which which symbolizes i mean agriculture as being you know at the forefront of, of our community and, and yet through my research i know that that the, the sale yards are actually on a really significant indigenous site like there is tree carvings around the sale yards which indicate that it's such an important site for us um you know historically and culturally so it, i i kind of I, you know that's that's our engagement like every day where you know you you're fighting and you're trying to work through a system that, that you're trying to, to connect with. You're trying to reach out. You're trying to have the, the conversations and, um, and it's just not always reflected back, I guess. And for us, we're, we're here. We've been around forever. We want to be around forever. 
like just engage us, like have the conversation and, and we don't have to agree on everything and, and we're not going to, but if we can just start, like, you know, openly and respectfully, I think is really important that we just sit down and we acknowledge that there are, there are different truths that we have dis- different histories, but we need to all still be around oh, and, you know, and ensure life into the future. For me, that's what, what really guides me that we need to make sure we have that and we need to have that in a which means we need country which means we need to to understand indigenous knowledge and its application to country and and we need both black and white people around into the future so we need to work through that together so that we're both still around is there a piece of indigenous knowledge uh, for having these courageous conversations or, uh, you know, I'm going to probably put my foot in it, but as I understanding there's songs and corroboree and, and rituals that Indigenous cultures, depending on country, have had in order to do things like rites of passage from one stage of life to another. Is there a, like, a truth-telling uh cultural practice that we could roll out town by town, you know, that would be sensitive to the way that, um, yeah, Indigenous wisdom says it should be done. Yeah. I think for me, it's just sitting around by a campfire and having a yarn. Like, it's that simple that we just need to, you know, we're all connected by fire. Um, Everyone's drawn to a flame. Um, and, you know, despite the destructiveness that fire can be or how destructive it can be, it, there's some kind of warmth and, um, and beauty to it, I guess. And, you know, just by sitting down and having a yarn, uh, as I said, we don't need to agree on everything. We might have very different truths, but we can sit down and just have that conversation in a, in a manner that's, that's respectful and, and, you know, on, on country, I guess, is the other important bit. And, and you, I think, highlight that a lot. It, it's not just about getting a solution that, we sit at camera and just have a, you know, a big bonfire and, you know, with a whole heap of politicians and business owners and, you know, feel good afterwards. It's, it's going around to every kind of place and, and recognizing that the truths vary and, and, and even our, our indigenous history varies right across Australia. So making sure that we acknowledge that, and you know, that local people are leading those conversations. Yeah, I think it's brilliant. Um, I wanted to talk to you about the, um, recent agricultural interest in biodiversity and uh, lots of people are producing meths, you know, methods. Uh, and, you know, there's a method for measuring biodiversity over here and another one over there and an organics one over there. Is there a meth to Indigenous agriculture? Uh, and is that a good thing given the diversity of climates to be proposing such things as meths? Yeah. So, I mean, as I said, every country is different and we need to acknowledge that. Obviously, there are some principles that go across, um, you know, Indigenous agriculture in a, in a very broad sense. Um, for me, what, what's happened, I guess, in agriculture has been this um, development of, you know, you said biodiversity principles, but, you know, the, this methodology of, of regenerative farming and, and trying to unpack that. Um, and, and, I mean, depending on who you read around indigenous uh, around regen farming it's loosely based on indigenous principles which you know makes the heart feel good but um it doesn't actually enable 
us as Indigenous people to tell our methodology for farming. Um, so, I mean, you know, the region ag principles, you, you look at um, no-till farming. Well, you know, that was designed in, uh, in Canada, um, you know, as a traditional method over there. <laughs> um, you know, the, there's other bits here. I, um, my view is that we have developed, we have an Indigenous agricultural method that lasted for at least 60 up to 120 plus thousand years time immemorial of how we sustained and, and used and farmed the land and, and what she provided back to us as, as indigenous people for the, the gratitude that we provided. We, we had that for at least 60,000 years. We had this moment in time of colonization that had its own kind of system and methodology that came over and, and the two didn't work together. And one of my, my biggest fears is that we're moving towards a conversation that says, oh, our Indigenous farming systems back 60,000 years ago are the same as, as your methods. Like, yeah, we're, we're doing the same thing. Uh, and that we, you know, we're, we're having the same conversation, that we'll farm in the same, same way without respecting that they are very different systems and that, you know, there, there was a kind of point in time where you had a, a very rich Indigenous history and then you had this kind of colonialist period that, you know, changed everything. And, and comparing them and saying that they're the same um, is really fraught in my mind. So I think we've had a, a very strong Indigenous agricultural, you know, 60,000 plus a year principal development period. We've also had a, a very strong Indigenous agricultural element. And by that, I mean a very strong Indigenous engagement in colonial agriculture. So we've, we've actually already seen some of those principles incorporated. So, we, you know, we talk about the very early Aboriginal stockmen who were able to find cattle where Western farmers couldn't find them. Uh, who, you know, the Indigenous stockmen who would lead cattle to water um, and, and vice versa. We've had, um, you know, livestock farms where Aboriginal boys were initiated into men through an agricultural system of, you know, their roles in which they played in a, in a cattle farm. So you have all of that going on, with that, but none of that kind of Indigenous engagement in colonial agriculture has been accepted or, or you know, told properly, to be honest. And what, what's happened now is we're in a time period where we've got regenerative ag, which loosely built on Indigenous principles, makes people feel good and, and ties back, which, which in my mind has a lot of promise but isn't an Indigenous method. Um, you also have this, this kind of view that, oh, well, Indigenous people have got this system over here, so why aren't they just doing this? Why aren't Indigenous people involved in native foods? Well, yeah, that, that's great. That's, that's this part, but we're engaged in the whole industry. Like we're farmers now, um, you know, in, in, in both sense. Um, so for me, it's got to be that kind of broad unpacking of our involvement in both 60,000 plus years plus, you know, post-colonisation, and that's our agricultural story. And what we need to do to get better into the future is take the best of Indigenous methodology and its application to today. We also need to get the best, you know, white farmers together and say, right, let's design a Australian agricultural system that is respectful of Indigenous history, which also acknowledges that things are changing and climate change is impacting farms and everything else. And that's what we need to start encouraging rather than just kind of taking piecemeal and hoping for the best. I couldn't agree more. Uh, the the uh, one point I, or question I guess I'd have is how do you see scaling uh, Indigenous agriculture? Do you think it's through the tertiary education system, through 
urban, going into farming? How does that transition happen in your mind? Uh, it's about acknowledgement to start, <laughs> um, which I guess isn't a surprise um, based on what I've said. It's about that, you know, that truth telling and then getting, you know, all the brilliant minds in the room and, and let's smash it out and, and work through that. Um, and, and it's going to take time. Like it, it, it's not an overnight fix. I, for me, um, despite my kind of concerns with regenerative farming as being a, you know, very loose indigenous methodology, what that has enabled us to do is start having an Indigenous voice about agriculture and it's starting to welcome us into the tent. So I'm hopeful that the next horizon um, that we will have that Indigenous push and that we'll have more, you know, Indigenous agricultural leaders opening up the doors and saying, right, we want a piece of this. We want to start having a conversation. I mean, 40% landholders, whether fifth biggest cattle producer already, um, you know, we, we have we have some credentials. We just need to have them acknowledged. Um, so for me, yeah, it's about time. Yeah, but I, I think it'll happen. I'm super optimistic. I hope there's a day when we talk about Josh Gilbert Company the way we talk about RM Williams. You know, um, it's part of the the folklore of Australian agriculture um, that comes from a hopefully a much different place. Um, Okay, so Gareth, I'm going to ask you to come back up and we're going to do the last three uh, sort of, you know, recommendations. What can we do to nudge, like, as listeners to this conversation, Josh, what can we do to nudge the future into uh, the direction of utopia instead of uh, dystopia? Yeah. What are your top three priorities? Do you want mine, mate? Yeah. 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 Gareth's going to record them. So my, my first one is, I mean, the appreciation and understanding of Indigenous knowledge by, you know, truth-telling or, or through truth-telling. The Sorry, I'll, I'll let you type, Gareth. Um, <laughs> I, I, as soon as I have to type fast, I lose the ability to spell as well. Yeah, my, me too. Don't worry. Um, this, the second one for me that kind of will move us towards that is that we need this to be people-led, not hoping for government to try and create change or, or that businesses will just get the warm and fuzzies and think that they need to start including us. Um, this is a, a you know, people-led revolution like it, it always has been and we need to start working with people on the ground to do that. And the third... Uh, really for me is, is probably let Aboriginal people lead. Like actually give up your power dynamics. Let us lead the conversation. Let, let us and, and facilitate us to, to share our voice um, so that we can really open that conversation up and, and have that dialogue in, in our own sense rather than trying to communicate it through someone else. Josh, that's awesome. Thank you so much. Um, Gareth, any uh, more questions we need from your side to fill out our um, beautiful picture or lack of beautiful picture? <laughs> well, thanks. Uh, uh, <laughs> I haven't criticised you yet. Uh, I'll leave it to you, to Gareth. <laughs> 
I suppose I suppose one question I'd have is is in you know is in terms of scaling right and I'm talking from a place of deep ignorance here so in terms of scaling you know to feed the numbers of people we have in Australia and and you know you pointed to sort of surrounding countries as well how do you think you know where where how does that come into this this system this transition yeah, I, I guess I, I start where it, where it shouldn't start. Um, and for me, we've got an agricultural, um, you know, the National Farmers Federation who have a $100 billion farm gate target. And, you know, while I, I agree we need to build the agricultural system in the, uh, in the broad sense, what we don't have is, um, you know, a kind of acknowledgement that that isn't just financially, um, but we need, we need to do that through... Um, you know, a whole range of different things and wealth isn't built on, on dollars. It, it's built on a, a range of other aspects and we need to unpack each of those and, and be building industries that are purposeful and, you know, provide impact rather than, you know, have a financial goal. And one of the, I, I, I think the thing that's that uh, uh, kind of caused me a bit of, you know, grief is, is, you know, even regenerative ag, which provides that promise, I guess, of our involvement into the future, isn't seen as feasible because it might have, um, you know, it might create a, a lack of financial wealth for farmers. So if you can unpack the, the need of a, you know, this highly lofty $100 billion target, which, which, you know, doesn't really mean anything and actually start talking about more profitable farms, better farming communities, um, you know, having the ability to have conversations around truth and unlocking their 40% of Indigenous land for agriculture into the future and making farms, you know, less susceptible to climate change risk. If we take all of the, the things that we want our farms to be more resilient, I guess, um, and, and more, you know, Indigenous um, supported and, and led, then we, we end up in a lot better position than just saying, let's have a big financial target and hope for the best. Thanks for that. Okay. Yep. So Gareth, if you've got more questions. <clears throat> Sorry. Questions? Yeah. Um, so, I also just, just I suppose it's kind of related, but just again, you know, delving into this, this whole system. Um, and obviously, you know, what, what I took from that was that you were talking in the broadest sense of Australian system. And obviously, you know, there's, there's, there's huge variation in there. So what, you know, that made me think of some other talks we've had around things like, you know, how that links in with, uh, supermarket chains and how you know some of those work i wonder where where do you see again you know and i think it's maybe an extension of some of what you've been talking about but where does that you know where does that system design touch on some of those other aspects of things like food deserts and you know how supermarkets and all that sort of stuff yeah so i mean if i kind of take that back the, the first one is food security i mean we're a, we're a nation that produces a lot of food, but we still have inequality around Indigenous access and 
um, to, to food and, and, you know, this incredible pricing system that somehow miraculously has developed to um, further, um, you know, make food inaccessible for our people, particularly fresh food. Um, so it, it starts with that, this premise that we need to have food security. And that's not just for Indigenous people. And, you know, I obviously would advocate more for Indigenous people in that aspect, given the prices of food in remote communities. But it, it also is for um, non-Indigenous people as well. And, I mean, it's certainly something that I've seen impact my family as well, that, you know, this risk of not having enough food and the impacts of that. Um, so we, we need to start with that premise. I guess the food system that develops out of that needs to be um, a conversation. I mean, <laughs> through a range of different things. I mean, what kind of food do we need to be eating in the future? You've had this huge conscious shift um, away from, you know, the meat being eaten um, on, on scale and the amount of meat we eat. Um, so that that's kind of impacted um, food produ production systems. Um, we need to think about what that future um, demographic is going to look like. Um, we're also going to have changes of, you know, demographics, even just locally. I mean, our cities will age and have a lot of older people. We've also got um, more, you know, Indigenous people moving to the city. So what does that mean? Um, do we need to unpack all of that? I, uh, <laughs> As I said at the start, I'm not a futurist, but we need to just think about some of those trends uh, and what all those impacts are and then start designing a food system that kind of really, I, I guess, at the forefront makes food secure. And I, I guess the other bit for me is around um, making sure that we get fair price for farmers, like, you know, a fair um, return for, for agricultural producers. And, and fair, I mean, is a very... Um, loose term as well uh, and can mean a lot of different things but I, I'd like to see that we haven't you know some kind of acknowledgement for the for the work that our farmers are putting in and that they get a, a fair price that helps ride out the bumps and um, you know and, and maybe renewables will do that maybe there's other opportunities that will provide that kind of fair return um, that will complement food production but it's um yeah, it needs to be considered in a whole of system kind of scale. Awesome, thank you, Josh. Yeah, thank you. I, mean, I think that's you know that's um, that's great, and it really does tie into some you know, some of the similar things that we've heard from other speakers as well. So there's this sort of um, confluence around things like you know getting a fair a fair return for agriculture producers and. Yeah, pricing and food security that, that we've heard about. So there's some sort of really interesting lines that can you know, go across the, those, those different talks. So that's great, thank you. Awesome. Um, at this point, uh, might get you to stop sharing screen. Kevin um, and Josh, uh, there's a final couple of minutes, like literally four until we've used up your good graces. Kevin, have you got any questions for Josh? at this point. I'm in the waiting room as well, by the way, I think. Yeah, I don't know who that is, do you? Um, Kevin, go for it. Yeah, look, um, uh, not, not, so much, not so much questions, but um, uh, I, think it, I, I think a lot of the, um, 
another way of another way of, of thinking about the problem is to think about the problems of not just the um, uh, not just not just the um, indigenous um, side of things, but also the dispossessed on the on the on the immigrant side of things as well. It's not there are there are a lot of dispossessed people in in Australia, and it's and and the the combination if we if we if we can alleviate the problem with the indigenous people, which is a clearly a very good focus, we also will impact the the dispossessed, if you like, of people like um, uh, people who 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 exist in the rest of society who are also dispossessed, and there's a lot of those as well. You know, we we have a we have a, a very uh, um, unequal society, and and the how how do, do you think? I guess so. The, I guess the question is, maybe that's the way in which we can address the problem by recognizing that dispossession is not just the colonials, as it were, the, the colonial influence, but also the dispossession of the the people who they brought along to do the labouring as well. So is that one way of bridging the gap, if you like? I, I think I think about it more of an opportunity rather than a, a problem, I think. Um, and, and certainly it's not just uh, Indigenous. Um, th th there's more than just an Indigenous perspective and, and one of the kind of key learnings I've been had drummed into me recently is that um, it, it's not just about being the best Aboriginal farmer or agriculturalist or, or whatever. You need to be the best agriculturalist who just happens to be Aboriginal. Um, and, and with that mindset, it, it's through um, acknowledging that there's a broader problem, that there's more opportunities for, for more than just Indigenous people. I, I think for me, um, that's just the the framing that I, I resonate most with and, and I see and have most experience with, but I appreciate the, the sentiments that there, there are more people who can benefit out of a changing system um, and that we need to facilitate that for all um, rather than just our mob. No, no, I was, what I was trying to get at was the way in which we can get the conversation going. Um, you, you say quite rightly that we've got to get the conversation going and we've got to let Different people lead and and have have the appropriate voices, but um, maybe instead of maybe that's the way, or maybe it is already the way in which in which it's, in which it's, the, the community can actually do that. But rather than looking to the um, rather than looking to the politicians uh, uh, to feed things down from the bottom, um, look at the look at the the people. Who who aren't at the top of the tree, um, and and start to start to work out ways in which they can combine together to uh, to to force the change. Thanks, Kevin and Josh. Do you want to talk to that, and then I'll let you go because time. No, I I mean I, I think that's right, and, and as I said, it needs to be a conversation through community 
to then inform business to then um, have that conversation with with government. I um, <laughs> pessimistically, I guess, have have no hope that government's going to lead this change. Um, you know, and it's the same in the climate debate potentially as well. So, um, yeah, you're right. It, it starts with with people power and then moves up. So that's what my focus is at. Uh, thank you, Josh. On that note, I'll leave everybody with the seven scariest words you can hear is, uh, hi, I'm from the government. I'm here to help. <laughs> Thank you, everybody, for joining in. Thank you, Josh. Great to meet you. Health building. Thanks, all. Talk to you soon. Morty, do you just want to leave me on and I'll just...